You've got shit. I've got shit. We've all got shit. So let's therapize that shit with your host, me, Joy Gerhard. Please note, I am not a therapist. I cannot and do not diagnose anyone or prescribe anything. This is just me, someone who struggles with mental illness, emotions, and intrusive thoughts, sharing what skills I've used and how I've used them. Also, trigger warning, in this podcast, I talk about sensitive topics including mental illness, suicidal ideation, self-harm, rape, childhood sexual assault, trauma, and more. I also swear here and there, so listener discretion is advised. If you're new to the podcast, some context for you. I've gotten a ton of value out of doing group therapy and watching others process their shit. In group, I can see other people's patterns and behaviors much more clearly because they aren't my patterns and behaviors, but rather they're adjacent to mine. It's such a relief. I want to share this relief with you via this podcast, wherein I practice skills while actually in the thick of shit. Each episode, I typically do an introduction and provide some context. Then I play a recording of me actively dealing with shit. This isn't me talking about psychology or theories. I'm actually in distress, having strong emotions and strong urges. You're going to hear me crying, angry, numb. But my intention is always to move through an emotion, never to stay there. So stick with me and we'll actually come out on the other side by the end of the episode. Alrighty, let's hop to it. Welcome, welcome. I am being so fucking sporadic right now in the frequency with which I am posting these episodes. A lot's been going on, and so I thought I would come to you late at night on this lovely August evening and talk into your ear in my dulcet tones like some sort of late night DJ. That's not what I'm going to do. Um, I'm actually going to play a really silly clip for you that's significantly shorter than my typical clip, but uh, we'll get to that in a second. I thought I would do one of my check-ins and just kind of fill you in on what's been going on in my life that has been preventing me from actually getting podcast episodes up. It has not been stopping me from actually being able to practice, however, um, practice therapy skills, that is. So I think I mentioned it in my last episode, which would be episode 37, that my dad and I have been remodeling our downstairs laundry room into a full bathroom, in addition to being a laundry room. And the whole process is very much like if you give a mouse a cookie, he's going to want a glass of milk. Really, the whole point is that we need to remodel the upstairs bathrooms. There's two bathrooms back to back in the upstairs that are falling apart, kind of literally. The showers are leaking, there's mold in the drywall, like the baseboards are crumbling, etc. And because they're back to back, we're going to do them at the same time. But if we do that, then we don't have a bathroom in the house. So how are we solving that problem? By building a bathroom downstairs. There already was a bathroom downstairs, but it didn't have a shower. It was just a toilet and a sink. So we are now adding in a shower. And of course, in order to do that, we had to jackhammer the concrete slab that the house is sitting on. And since we're doing that, we might as well replumb all the cast iron pipes that were plumbing the drain lines for the house. And we might as well also run new supply lines for the entire house because the existing supply lines are 60-year-old copper. Let's replace it with PEX, which is flexible and, well, that's really its, its selling feature. It's flexible. But for the last, God, let's see, we started this in March, five months, over five months, we go to do one small thing. And in order to do that one small thing, we have to do 27 other things, which each of which is connected to 19 other things. And it's this ever expanding web of stuff. And my dad is a chemical engineer, and I used to work for a general contractor. So we're not like coming into this completely blind, but the learning curve is very, 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 very strong. High, extensive, significant even, and other synonyms. 
the plus side of all of this, and this is going to sound like I'm being an absolute wise ass, but this is legitimately true. I have gotten a lot of opportunities to practice interpersonal effectiveness skills with my dad. Uh, Because I like spending so much time by myself, like that family of skills has always been the hardest for me to practice, to prioritize practicing, to be in situations where I can practice, because it, of course, requires other people. And uh, yeah, working with my father, who is 70, is challenging for a lot of different reasons, but it's been (laughs) annoyingly, and I'm, I'm annoyed that this is the case. It's actually been really good practice for me. Um, specifically around two main skills, which I've talked about extensively on this podcast. Uh, It's been a big deal for me practicing non-judgment and radical acceptance because my father is who my father is. And as my my dearest darling sister, Anne, hi Anne, um, has said, No one in the history of the world has ever changed their behavior because somebody judged them harshly enough to make them, (laughs) which is just the most fucking awful true statement. Like, judging my dad doesn't change his behavior. It just pisses me off. And it makes him feel shitty, too, because nobody likes being judged. So anyway, that's what, what I've been working on. Yeah, a lot of long days. I've been really fucking tired. Um, a lot of heavy brain work. But um, yeah, it's coming along. It's a whole thing, guys. It really is. If you give him a massive cookie, he's going to want a glass of milk. It's just this never-ending... It will end. It will end. Seemingly never-ending um, domino cascade effect. Anyway, all of that's neither here nor there. That has nothing to do with the recording that I'm about to play for you. Uh, so this recording is from July 9th, 2022. I'm recording what you're hearing right now, August 25th, 2023. So a year and a month and a half after the fact. And this is, this is a recording that I made right after doing some prolonged exposure around looking for a job. And the task that was set before me was to update my resume and my LinkedIn. And uh, (laughs) the recording cracks me up because I'm so fucking angry, (laughs) like really fucking annoyed. Um, And I've gone into in much greater detail the exact nature of what exposure is like, um, all the different steps of it and how it works and why it works and all of that. Uh, If you want to hear more about that process, you should check out, let's see, what should you check out? Episode 28, um, where I talk about prolonged exposure, specifically the protocol that's used in DBT therapy. Um, And I go over the, the two main components, which are imaginal exposure, where I'm doing exposure to a memory, like I'm picturing it in my head and telling the story in great detail. And then there's also in vivo exposure, which means in life. So it's exposure to actual tasks, things that I do over the course of my life, like in the present day. And prior to doing a given exposure task, the protocol is that I, I name the things I'm afraid will happen if I do the exposure task, the things, the feelings I'm afraid will happen, the behavior that I'm afraid will happen, the fallout that I'm afraid will happen. And I chart how I feel before doing it. And then I chart while it's going on how I feel. And then after it's done, I ask the question, did the things I was afraid of, did they happen? And if they did, how bad was it? Like, what was my experience of it? And then, of course, I also chart my, like, emotions after the fact. So that's in a very, the the smallest of nutshells, what exposure is like. And what you're about to hear is me coming right off of doing, spending like an hour and a half doing an exposure task, which was updating my resume. And um, I'm kind of pissed off. And I wasn't originally going to share this episode, like I wasn't going to share this recording. It's 10 minutes long, and I don't actually really demonstrate skills 
all that well in it. I do do some mindfulness to current thoughts. Like I actually label my thoughts as thoughts, which is something, I guess. Um, But the main reason I wanted to share it, it feels very honest. One of the most frustrating aspects of doing therapy at all is it feels like going swimsuit shopping. It's taking long, hard looks at myself from angles that aren't terribly flattering under circumstances that aren't terribly flattering. The lighting isn't great. The mirrors are kind of distorted and shit. It's all overhead lighting. You see all the different parts of yourself that you're not used to seeing, and they don't look particularly great in that lighting. And that's, I have that experience in therapy a lot. It's really useful. Like it's, It's good to know those things. It's good to actually name that machinery is running because if it just runs automatically the whole and I'm just functioning on autopilot, I can't change anything about autopilot. If I want my life to look different, I have to do things that are different and If I'm not even aware of what I'm currently doing, I have no chance. I stand no chance of being able to shift future behavior. So it's uncomfortable. Like this sort of like paying attention, this sort of noticing is uncomfortable. Because the other, the other fun part about it is that in order to learn a new skill, I first have to be aware of the fact that I don't have that skill And I go from being blissfully ignorant to being mindfully ignorant, consciously incompetent. Like I become aware of my own lack of knowledge. And that has to happen first. There's no way around it, but it's an uncomfortable place to be. It's no fun. And like being made aware of my own blind spots, being made aware of my own machinery, the things that have been running automatically in the background... And having all of that awareness before I have the skill to do anything about it sucks. Like, it sucks. And one of the things that I've been working on that's going to be a a lifelong pursuit is uh, building up my stamina to that, to the discomfort of being aware of how little I know or how unskilled I am in certain things. And sitting here in my audio booth on this late August evening, talking into your ear with my dulcet tones, it's not an audio booth, it's just my bedroom. Right now, I'm like, yeah, it's uncomfortable. We, we can survive discomfort. That's, that's not a problem. We know how to live with the discomfort. It's fine. Listening back to this recording, however, <laughs> it's like... If nothing else, this podcast is so useful because I get to listen to myself from the past be in extreme emotion mind, like have very, very strong emotions. And sitting here right now, I'm not having those strong emotions. And what that tells me, if it tells me no other thing, it tells me this one thing, that the emotions pass. Like, that's one of those things that I think I, I intellectually knew. I'm like, yeah, emotions don't last forever. But I didn't like live my life as though I knew that and not just know it in my head, but like know it in my body, have it be embodied knowledge. I certainly, when I'm having strong emotions, I tend to relate to them as being permanent. Like, well, this is where we live now. And so it's really useful to go back and listen to recordings. And I'm like, wow, you were really struggling with, you know, that idea, that skill, that feeling, and I'm not struggling with it right now. That means it was temporary. That doesn't mean it's any less painful while it's happening. Uh, But I think it's useful for my own benefit, I guess, um, to have that perspective of like, yeah, it's really painful. It sucks that this is this is what's what's going on right now. It's unpleasant. And it's not going to be permanent. Both of those things can be true at the same time. Like I can acknowledge the pain of that present moment and also acknowledge that this is not always how I will feel. 
which is very useful because in those moments, my brain does a really good job of trying to convince me that this is permanent. So it's a nice reminder. Ooh, also, some brief orientation before I play the recording for you. Uh, most of the skills I reference are from the DBT manual by Marsha Linehan. And DBT stands for Dialectic Behavioral Therapy and is the therapy that seems to work best for me, I guess. Uh, the DBT manual is linked in the description, both in PDF form and where you can buy a hard copy. And whenever I'm quoting the DBT manual or really anybody else's work other than my own, I'll put on a little bit of a reverb sound effect so that I sound like, oh, I don't know, I'm at an Applebee's or more accurately, an Applebee's bathroom. Uh, I will be referencing handouts from several of the DBT modules in this episode, of which there are four, mindfulness, interpersonal effectiveness, emotion regulation, and distress tolerance. So whenever I mention a handout that I'm reading from, I'll say something like, this is from emotion regulation handout 12, and you can follow along if you're so inclined. Anywho. All right, I'm just going to throw over to the the recording and let it play. Past joy, take it away. I'm so fucking annoyed about this. So... I just did exposure to updating my resume and updating LinkedIn, adding uh, my two most recent jobs to it. And before I did exposure, I had to fill out what my worst case scenarios were going to be and then what my feared outcomes of those would be. Um, Also, what I thought the likelihood of those things happening would be and how bad it would be if those things happened. And then, of course, after I do exposure, I answer how likely those things were going to be and how bad it was when it happened. So I had written down anger, hopelessness, and shame as the worst things that could happen. And then my feared outcome of those things, so with anger... I said my feared outcome was that I'd have all this rage over how past jobs have gone and no way to process that rage. It would then get trapped in my body and prevent me from ever being able to get another job and I get sick and never get out of poverty. Another worst uh, case was hopelessness. My feared outcome of that was I despair of ever having a job that feels like a good fit and that I enjoy and that is healthy for me. I then give up looking or trying to get a job and I never get a job and I never get out of poverty. And then my last one is shame. My feared outcome was that I would judge myself for being so skilled and still not being able to hold down a job. I judge myself for staying so long in past jobs that were unhealthy for me. I go into a shame spiral and feel like shit. My confidence and self-esteem tank and I never recover them. But I didn't have anger. And I didn't have hopelessness and I didn't have shame. What the fuck? Mostly I was just trying to fit what used to be a single page resume into two pages because I had to kind of just restructure things and blah, blah, blah. I added a bunch of stuff too. Um, I'm annoyed. I'm thoroughly, thoroughly annoyed by this. I hate, I hate examining my fears, like my worst cases. There's something about it that feels like, like somebody standing right over my shoulder and watching me work. It's like, would you get off my back, please? Just let me have the thoughts that I have. Stop, stop examining them. Stop noticing them. Can I just feel anxious and uncomfortable and not, not, Question it, or not even question it. That's not what I'm doing, just naming it. And it's like, fuck you. It really does feel person standing over my shoulder, but narrating everything I'm doing. And there's a utility to it. I acknowledge that there's a utility to it because when things go, when my thoughts and feelings go unexamined or unnoticed, rather, when they go unnoticed, They occur to me as fact. They occur to me as truth. They occur to me as who I am rather than as things I have. 
So I relate to these thoughts of like, I'm never going to get a fucking job as truth versus I'm having the thought I'm never going to get a fucking job. I relate to my shame as accurate about myself that I am unemployable. I relate to that as true. And of course, these feelings, I feel like how it feels in my body, like feeling sick to my stomach and kind of having all this nervous energy. I relate to those things as my default state and things to avoid as opposed to things to observe and tolerate. Fucking, fucking, fuck. I hate this. I hate it so much. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. Because I want, I just want to be left alone to like fuck shit up. And examining it is so fucking painful. It's so painful. It feels like water torture. And I can tell the difference. I've been doing this long enough that I can tell the difference between pain that's causing harm versus pain that's from growth like pain that's that's like stopping me or pain that's not in line with my values versus pain that's me trying to move through a thing that's uncomfortable they're different like there's a difference and this is absolutely pain that's uncomfortable as opposed to pain that's harmful and I fucking hate it And if I were in session right now, I would yell at my therapist, shut up, you're a menace. Like, granted, we're still in a fairly low, low, um, low distress uh, task. Updating my resume is, I mean, fucking 99% of it's graphic design, which is what I love to do anyway. So it's not horrible. It's annoying because things aren't breaking across pages the way I want them to. And it's just a bunch of little like adjusting of spacing and shit. But by and large, it's not a horrible thing doing this. We have yet to get to the part where I start applying for jobs, which of course I'm putting off because I'm anticipating that that's going to be very, very uncomfortable and also fucking pointless because I applied to 115 jobs back in December and January of 2020 into 2021. And I know the job market is different now and I know I'm fortune telling and anticipating that no one's ever going to like contact me or want to interview me or even respond to anything. I'm having the thought that this is all fucking pointless. I've never gotten a job from a resume. I've never gotten a job because I applied to one. Typically, it's, you know, networking in the true organic sense of the word, like not going to mixers or like those networking meetings and stuff. It's mostly just you know, people that I know knowing that I'm looking for work and then them connecting me with people who need work. So yeah, I just have the thought that all of this is fucking pointless. And because I tend to fill gaps in companies, I have like, I'm maxing out. So LinkedIn allows you to have 50 skills and I have maxed it out. And I'm not including skills that I'm like, eh, I could kind of figure my way around a thing. I'm like, I actually know what I'm doing in all of these things. The bigger problem is not what am I skilled at, but rather what do I enjoy? And I don't know how to answer that question. I mean, I like graphic design. I don't know that I would like it as a job. Anyway, I'm just like going into circles of thoughts here and resistance, and whatever else. But my point here is that it's unpleasant noticing thoughts. It's like having a camera on me all the fucking time. And I'm not allowed to just be as the thought I'm having, as though noticing my thoughts prevents me from 
existing, which is not true. That's not what's happening. It feels like what's happening. I have the thought that that's what's happening. A lot of these thoughts are like afraid of sunlight also, like saying them out loud, writing them down. I feel sick to my stomach, literally like I feel like I'm going to puke right now. And I'm doing you all a favor and cutting out all the burps (laughs) that are happening. Because like my stomach is in such knots right now. This fucking sucks and I don't like it. Welcome back to the future. I have thoughts. Like it was fun to listen to that back because God, I was so riled up. One of the things I realized in listening back to this is my therapist and I went down that road for a while of doing exposure to things that I was avoiding doing around looking for a job. And a lot of that was coming from the place that I had the thought, well, that's what I'm supposed to do. That's, you know, what an adult does is an adult gets a job. And we weren't being terribly effective. I think we were, we weren't making a lot of headway. It felt a lot like I was just kind of banging my head into a wall. And so we kind of, we abandoned it. And we spent the last, I don't know, eight months, seven months or so, um, kind of redesigning what exposure is going to look like for me. um, Because... As my therapist said, we're going rogue, Um, which feels appropriate because I have autism and the DPT manual was written by somebody who does not have autism. It's not designed for people with autism and clearly my brain works in different ways. So we've, my therapist and I have spent a lot of time talking about what we can do that would be more effective. We've been doing a lot of micro experiments trying to kind of, it feels kind of like a game of um, hot and cold. You know, where somebody hides something in a room and the other person has to find it and the person who hid it can only say warmer or colder. And so my therapist will start kind of, we start kind of poking at things and go until I get, <laughs> they get a reaction out of me. So if I'm, if I'm getting pissed off or if I'm getting, you know, really sad or, or whatnot, that's usually an, an indicator that there's something there that is unresolved, unhealed, um, that I, I'm defensive about, what have you. So I didn't share that that recording as a indicator of like, here, what a huge success this exposure was, because that was a, a rabbit hole we, we went down that actually didn't have a lot of great um, utility, I don't think. But the reason I wanted to share that was because I think it's a really authentic look at what it feels like to examine something that's afraid of sunlight. Like, I love that I said that as as I'm quoting myself here. Um, It's a perfect way to articulate it, that a lot of my thoughts, a lot of the kind of autopilot thought ruts that I have uh, really hate the sunlight because they're not rooted in extant fact. And what I mean by that is extant as in like still living, currently occurring. Uh, Thought ruts are formed, you know, they're all caused like in the same way that all behavior is caused, all thoughts are caused. Um, But the thing about thought ruts is that they make sense, like the, the origin of them makes sense at the time of the origination of a thought. And I can keep sending thoughts down that rut and making it deeper and deeper and deeper, even past the point where that thought was useful. And now I'm stuck in this thought rut, even though it has no utility for me anymore, and it's actually harming me. It kind of feels like a vestigial trait, you know, something that was at one point evolutionarily advantageous and has just been clinging on past the point of utility until it becomes painful enough and expensive enough, like from an energetic standpoint, to actually maintain that trait, maintain that behavior rut in this analogy. And it's still fucking uncomfortable. And I don't have I don't have an assumption of comfort. Like I don't expect life to be comfortable. And in fact, I seem to be 
more comfortable in situations that other people find uncomfortable. My ideal way to spend a really hot day, you know, high 80s, 90s, 100s, is to strap on my 40-pound pack and go and climb stairs outside. (laughs) Um, And not just once. uh, I will climb them for like two or three hours because it just, it feels good in my body to sweat and to have muscle fatigue and to be out of breath. Like all of that feels really good. I do really well with tedium also. My favorite part of the laundry room project was actually tearing up the linoleum that was glued to the floor. And my mom and I would take turns with the heat gun and just, I would go down like, hey, I've got a free afternoon. And I'd sit on the floor for like three or four hours at a time and scrape off the linoleum and the glue with a like a putty knife type situation. I don't know, like discomfort's not a problem. I don't know why I went down this rabbit hole. This sort of like self-examination and awareness is really uncomfortable. And I can also survive the discomfort. Like it won't kill me. Um, and it won't even it won't even weaken me. If anything, avoiding the discomfort I think makes me fragile in the sense that like I become hypersensitive to upset. Or like I can't handle it. And I get knocked out of my equilibrium really easily. And just kind of processing thoughts out loud here in real time. Um, This is the first episode in a really long time where I actually don't have like bullet points of things I want to cover before and after the episode. Um, Because I write down the things that I, I notice in the recording and then say, you know, write down a note, just make sure you mention this, cover this topic, like go over these things. And I'm not doing that here. I'm just like thinking. One of the challenges of having autism is the, the degree to which discomfort is kind of like my default setting. Like most of the time, the temperature is not right. Most of the time, the noise level is not right. Most of the time, the, the lighting temperature and the brightness isn't right. Most of the time, my clothes aren't right. Like, all of these things are uncomfortable. And being exposed to brighter and brighter light doesn't increase my stamina to it. It actually, like, feels like it's chiseling down my nervous system, whittling it down, taking a a big like sequoia redwood and turning it into a toothpick. It's like, that's not a lot of structural integrity there. So it's weird to be observing that there are situations where discomfort actually does help and does make me stronger. And I think in this case, and I I really, really, really do not want to make this a blanket statement for all people and for all people's experiences I'm just aware that like the more I I experience strong emotion uncomfortable emotion and notice that I can survive it I think that's key cuz I think I can experience strong emotion like I think of my teenagers like I was experiencing strong emotions constantly I was having meltdowns like on a weekly if not a daily basis and I don't know that any of that made me stronger in the same way that like I could bang my forehead against a piano for 10,000 hours and I'm not going to get better at playing the piano. I think practice at something only like actually gets me, gets any of us better at that thing if we're practicing in an effective way. And like just having the emotions doesn't necessarily like improve my life. I'm like, why did I, like, Joy, it wasn't just your, your high school, it wasn't just your teenage years. Like, I, I don't want to use the term have a handle on, because I don't know that emotions are things you can have a handle on. It's not like I get to dictate how I feel at a drop of, at the drop of a hat. I don't get to dictate what my emotions are doing. But 
I would say it was 2016, which is seven years ago. So I was 33 when I did DBT for the first time. And it was the first time I ever had language for how I feel. The first time I was ever given any sort of blueprint for, hey, if you're feeling these things in your body and if you're having thoughts that are kind of like this, it's likely that you're feeling this emotion. And here's some some helpful ways to like feel that emotion effectively. Here's some helpful ways to ad- address it if if it's so strong it's getting in your way. Like I didn't have access to any of that shit. And I was like this loose cannon. Clearly feeling emotions a lot didn't make me better at feeling them. Like I I was having, I I mean, just like fucking meltdown after meltdown, man. Like I talked to one of my best friends about how grateful I am that I met them when I did. Actually in the middle of doing DBT. Because I don't think they would have liked me before that. Looking back at it, I I feel like I was a seven-year-old who was given car keys and said, here, go ahead and drive. I'm like, I do not have the skill level or the like neurological development to be effective at this thing. But here I am in a car now and I have to get somewhere. And it's actually important that I get to where I'm going So I guess I'm going to drive and just kind of pinball my way down the street, careening off of other vehicles and hope I don't kill anybody. Like my older sister, Ruth, hi Ruth, would ask me how I was feeling. And I didn't know how to even tell her if I wasn't feeling fine. Like I didn't have any language for any of it. (laughs) Like I've been thinking a lot about I always am thinking a lot about sharks, but sharks have these electromagnetic receptors and so do other, there's other species of fish that have them too. Um, But uh, they're called the ampullae of Lorenzini. Um, They're these receptors that pick up electromagnetic signals. And I don't know if humans have any ability to detect electromagnetic signals, but we certainly don't have these particular organs or um, structures and so like sharks can read things that we can't even see we have no way of detecting like in within our own bodies and that's kind of what emotions have felt like for the majority of my life that like my sister could pick up on it my sister could very clearly read that there was something wrong with me like I was upset about something or I I was sad about something or whatever. And uh, she would ask me how I was doing. And I'm like, well, I don't have the, the instrumentation to read whatever you're picking up on. So my my instruments, the ones that I do have, are all just pegged at fine. In the same way that if you ask an odometer in your car what temperature it is, it's not going to be able to tell you. All it reads is speed, and even more specifically, all it reads is the rate of spin of your tires. So clearly I was having emotions, but had no facility with being able to actually like talk about them or observe them, which of course has to happen first before talking about them. And like, I still don't have a great facility with it now. I kind of have a cheat sheet, like the DBT manual, Emotion Regulation Handout 6, um, which is the the 10 page, the mother load, um, a handout going over like a, there's a page for each of the major um, kind of families of emotion and what type of events set them off, what type of interpretations set them off, what they feel like in your body, how they persist throughout the day, all of that sort of stuff. And that's my cheat sheet. Like I've internalized, I've memorized that cheat sheet basically. And so I, when somebody asks me how I'm feeling, it feels like going into like a a mental filing cabinet and being like, hang on just a second. Let me turn to that page. Let me scan. Okay. Here's what's going on. Um, It still doesn't come from any sort of like intuitive place. It's just me regurgitating information. And that might be, you know, I have alexithymia. 
like pretty, <laughs> pretty intensely. I don't know if it's a binary thing or if it's, you know, there's a, a spectrum of symptoms there. Why am I talking about any of this? What am I doing here? All of this to say that like this work is uncomfortable. It's really fucking uncomfortable. Like it doesn't feel great in my body. There's some skills that I learn where when I when they click into place, it's that satisfying, like putting a last puzzle piece in or like putting Lego pieces together. There's that that feeling when you know, ah, this piece goes here. This is not that experience. Like it's just fucking uncomfortable. And I don't know if it'll ever feel comfortable to actually like observe my own thoughts and observe my own mechanics running. Here's what it feels like. Okay. Perfect analogy because of what's going on at the house right now. So as my dad and I were demoing the laundry room, we would find all sorts of just weird shit. Like, why are these two studs 14 inches apart when they should be 16? Why are these other two studs 22 inches apart when they should be 16? Like, why is this, this, there's an outlet just floating in the wall. It's not attached to anything. Why is there a junction box in the ceiling with like no access panel, like all sorts of shit like this. And the thought I keep having as we've started to like reframe out new walls and put in new plumbing and whatnot is in 50 years, whoever owns this house, if this house is still standing, and it will be because we've made it to be bombproof, um, at least the plumbing and the windows will still be standing. Um, but if somebody is doing a remodel of the work that we've done, they're going to look at it and go, why the fuck did they do this? And every decision we've made has actually been really intentional. And it makes sense to us. It makes sense to us now in 2023 with the tools that we have, the resources that we have, the knowledge that we have. This is what we know to do. But somebody in 50 years will look at our work and not have any of that context. And they'll go, the fuck? Why did they, they soldered their own manifolds together? Why did they solder these two, but the other six are store-bought? Like, what the fuck were they doing? That's part of my practice of like practicing non-judgment as, as I'm working, not just uh, practicing non-judgment of my dad, but also like the, f- the former homeowner, like we don't know what the context was for the choices that he made as he was doing remodeling on the house. And I'm also trying to have like compassion and practice non-judgment for my dad and me about the choices we're making now because we're making them with the context and the information that we have now. In six months, we might look back at it and go, oh, why did we do it that way? We should have done it this way. But that'll be in six months. We'll have new information at six months, new experiences and new knowledge and new skills and all of that shit in six months that we don't have now. Cracking open, like paying attention to my own thought ruts feels a lot like opening up walls and going, what the fuck was the owner from 50 years ago thinking when they jerry-rigged this system? Like, I don't remember the context fully of what was going on in my life when I laid down some of these thought ruts, when I was like carving them out in my brain. But if I go into it assuming that there is a reason, that reason makes sense, and it no longer serves me, like that feels like a much more um, validating or compassionate like space to occupy, I guess. Um, that has me judging myself a lot less. So I think that's one of the reasons why the self-examination, why like labeling my thoughts as thoughts and paying attention to my body sensations and all that, part of the reason it feels painful is because I'm also judging myself for having those thoughts and those body sensations. Oh no, really, Joy?
because there's nothing inherently painful about trying on swimsuits in a dressing room, right? Like I'm not being jabbed with swords and like assuming that like the lighting isn't causing a sensory issue and assuming that I am able-bodied enough to be able to actually put on clothes. The reason that's painful is because I'm making judgments about my body and thinking that my body should look a different way. (sighs) Fuck. Okay. Okay. So what I'm hearing in all of this is that really the reason... I'm just going to, I'm saying it again for the, for the me in the back. Um, Mindfulness of my thoughts, paying attention to my own internal like landscape, what's going on in my body, what's going on in my brain, which is also part of my body, Joy. Um, Part of why it's annoying and painful and I'm like, stop filming me. (laughs) Like, stop looking over my shoulder. Uh is because there are judgments. I have judgments. Or I'm anticipating other people's judgments. So I haven't been practicing non-judgment of myself towards the things that I am observing come up during exposure, during these kind of like heavy introspective, like mindful moments. I've been judging the the fuck out of myself for it. Okay. Well, that's a fun realization. (laughs) And here I am judging myself for that as well. Like, why didn't you think of that earlier? Or why, like, what, what the fuck were you doing judging yourself? You know that's not effective. blah 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 There's a TikTok that I want to show the audio for of a person talking about kind of the, the Western definition of no, K-N-O-W, versus the kind of more indigenous, I'm not going to get the wording right, so I'm just going to play the play the audio here you go i knew i deserved better but i did it anyways so let's talk about the way that the word no is so overused within the english language and therefore makes us feel like we know things that we don't know you know what i mean so if you know that hot water is boiling hot you're not going to touch it right you feel that knowledge but if you knew you deserved better on a deep spiritual level you wouldn't have done that thing that tells me that you knew you felt better Oh, Western form of knowledge, white male thinking, rationality, logic. But you didn't know it because felt knowledge is rooted in the collective. It's rooted in how you've been treated. It's rooted in the things you've experienced and what you know to be true based on what you've actually experienced and what others around you have taught you to expect and to be okay with. And so I think we need to move away from this like really Western form of like intellectualizing knowledge and recognize that many things that we know, we don't know. So that's from TikTok user at Ayandastood, which is A-Y-A-N-D-A-S-T-O-O-D. Go watch that whole TikTok. I put a link in the description because she uses hand gestures to distinguish between knowing, like in your head, things that you only know intellectually, and knowing, which is like felt knowledge, things that you feel all the way in your body. And she's exactly right. They're There are definitely a large number of skills that I am still working on where I know, I know the skill intellectually and I know why it's useful intellectually, but I don't know it in my body yet. Uh, Most saliently to our current discussion is that the knowledge that judgments aren't effective for my long-term goals, especially when I'm judging myself or other people whose relationship matters to me. Like if I'm interested in maintaining a healthy, positive, mutual relationship with somebody else, judgments are not going to be effective in maintaining that healthy, happy, mutual relationship. Uh, There are situations where judgments are absolutely called for, but for me, 
Judgments end up being kind of like that old adage, when all you have is a hammer, everything's a nail. I take that judgment tool and I start banging it on everything, even when there's another tool that would be way more effective. Like, oh, you're doing behavior I don't like? I'm not going to use boundary setting. Judgment! Oh, I'm feeling some sadness or or regret over past choices that I've made? I'm not going to use validation. Judgment! I use judgments even when, yeah, other skills would be way more effective. Judgment, judgment, judgment. So this is still, like, this is going to be a lifelong practice. Um, But I do want to end on, this is weird, this is really the only um, handout I'm referencing in this episode. I want to end on Mindfulness Handout 5, which is called Taking Hold of Your Mind, How Skills. So there's Mindfulness Handout 4 is Taking Hold of Your Mind, What Skills. So these are the what things you do, what behaviors you do when you're being mindful. Mindfulness handout five are the how skills, which is how you do those things. The what skills are observe, describe, and participate. So those are things we do to be mindful. And how we do them is we do them non-judgmentally, one mindfully, and effectively. And that is mindfulness handout four and mindfulness handout five. But I want to focus primarily on mindfulness handout five, specifically non-judgmentally. I've gone over this before, but clearly I need all the reminders. So before we get into what non-judgmentally is, I want to go over what judgments are. (laughs) Judgments are things like good or bad, should or shouldn't, fair or unfair, right or wrong, black or white, always never, all or nothing, name-calling. I judge myself, I judge others, and I also judge reality. And the problem with judgments is that they're not based on fact. They're immutable. So once I make a judgment, it's very, very hard for me to change that judgment. And it also prevents understanding. It gets in the way of me understanding myself. It gets in the way of me understanding others. And it gets in the way of me understanding reality. My first DBT instructor said that judgments are aggressive certainty which is really true. And judgments absolutely have a place, like they're, they can be really useful, and their intended purpose is to keep us safe. But like I said, when I take judgments and I apply them all over the fucking place, like I, I go back to my default, I go down that behavior rut, I'm doing stuff automatically without actually evaluating it and going, hey, this may not be the most effective tool, maybe a hammer isn't the greatest thing for unscrewing something. Maybe a screwdriver would be more effective. So, how to practice non-judgmentally. See, but don't evaluate as good or bad. Just the facts. Accept each moment like a blanket spread out on the lawn. Oh, Marsha Linehan, the author of this book. She likes to wax poetic. Accept each moment like a blanket spread out on the lawn, accepting both the rain and the sun and each leaf that falls upon it. Acknowledge the difference between the helpful and the harmful, or as I like to say, the effective or the ineffective. The safe and the dangerous, but don't judge them. I'm going to say that again. Acknowledge the difference between the helpful and the harmful, the safe and the dangerous, but don't judge them. Acknowledge your values, your wishes, your emotional reactions, but don't judge them. When you find yourself judging, don't judge your judging. (laughs) Yeah, that's one of my favorite tools, like ways to address my own judgments when I notice myself judging is to ask the question, what is this judgment trying to do for me? And typically there's something else that would be way more effective In working with my dad, one of the things that I really, 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 really struggle with that feels like a cheese grater on my eyeballs is dad reads out loud. He doesn't read out loud when he's alone, but when we're going over something, like we're both reading the instructions for something, he reads out loud. And the reason it grates on me is because I read about five times faster than he can read out loud. It feels like being stuck behind a slow driver. It's very, very painful. It makes my brain hurt and it makes me want to claw my ears off. Now, I have (laughs) judged the ever-living fuck out of my dad for reading out loud. And that hasn't changed his behavior. Me being like, 
a judgmental asshole. That's a judgment. Asshole is a judgment. But me like being condescending towards him and like being snarky with him doesn't change his behavior. I've also asked him to stop. I'm like, I, you don't need to read this to me, dad. It's fine. Um, he doesn't remember to stop. So what I do now is when he starts reading out loud, I walk away and I've told him that I'm going to do that. I'm like, Hey, it's fine. If you want to read out loud, I'm just not going to stand here while you do it. And I don't know if it stops his behavior, but it certainly stops my misery around his behavior. Like I'm not there for it while he's reading out loud. I am in a different room, but judging him was getting in my way of actually being able to problem solve that one effectively. Cause I was just fucking pissed off at him for doing this behavior that I found really painful and really like grating. And my judgments of him didn't change his behavior. But what my judgments were trying to do is to calm my nervous system down. It's like, if I can get really pissed off at him, I'm distracted from how much this hurts my brain. And like, there are other ways to avoid a painful brain joy. You could just go into a different room. That would also accomplish that thing without also like absolutely blowing up your relationship with your dad. And it's actually really important to me that my relationship with my dad go well because we're doing a ton of work together and this is not work that we can both just throw up our hands and be like okay fuck it we're not going to keep working we're not going to finish this project like things are torn apart plumbing is hanging out of the walls like we cannot just pull the plug (laughs) plumbing joke Uh, uh, we actually do need to continue to work together effectively so the more effective thing for me to do rather than judging the ever-loving fuck out of my dad is to look for ways that I can change my behavior or ways that I can accept his behavior that will have my misery be less. And it's, it's also really important that my dad have like a good working experience with me. I don't want him waking up in the morning, like rolling his eyes and going, fuck, I have to spend like eight hours with joy today. And Joy is such an asshole. Nobody likes being judged. And so I don't want my dad to feel miserable working with me, which is pretty good incentive to get my judgments under control. And maybe control is not the right word. Before I can actually shift my behavior, I need to observe that I'm judging. And that's the bigger challenge, is to actually notice it when it's happening. But it's helpful to know the judgments are things like good or bad, should or shouldn't. Shouldn't, shouldn't are actually really useful kind of litmus tests for me to to notice whenever I'm like, we shouldn't do it this way. You should have done it this other way. Like those t- those words are really useful as like little neon signs that go, hey, that's a judgment. Try a different skill. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Okay, so those are my thoughts. I'm not going to continue to beat this dead horse. I think the horse is already dead. Ooh, but before I end, I want to like slide this in right under the wire. A huge thank you to my Patreon supporters. Wow, we got all the way to the end before I gave my little shout out here. I want to give a huge thank you to Sunny and Juicy and also an anonymous donor. I know who you are, but no one else needs to. Um, my donor, Andrew, and also the OGs, Anne and Ruth, my sisters, you all are magical long-nosed parrotfish and are 99.1% of the reason that this podcast exists for public consumption. So thank you so, so much. And if you, dear listener, would like to support this podcast, there's a link to my Patreon in the description. Alrighty, well thank you for hanging in there with me as we've discovered the joys and sorrows of judgments. Oh, happy day. Alrighty, well I don't know how to end this, so I'm just going to do my usual thing and end it super abruptly. This has been Let's Therapize That Shit with your host, me, Joy Gerhard. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about it. I'll see you next time. Intro and outro music is Swan Lake Opus 20 by Tchaikovsky, performed by the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Anatoly Fistulari, 
and released on LP by Richmond High Fidelity London Records in 1952.